This week on Retronauts. I'm waiting. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Retronauts episode 23. And today's topic is speedruns. And I am Bob Mackey, your host for this episode. Let's find out who else is here. Uh, who do we have on Skype? Oh, that would be me, Jeremy Parrish. Jeremy Parrish. And who else do we have? I'm Ray Barnholt. And? I'm Christian Nutt. And Christian, you're our special guest for today. You've been here before, but can you just remind our, uh, our listeners who you are? I am uh, Gamasutra's blog director... Um, and a notoriously annoying person online. Uh oh. Uh, yeah. Uh, Christian angered a few of our uh, <laughs> listeners last time. Uh, I don't. Did I? I don't think that uh, it w- you were being too unreasonable. Uh, it was our. It was our uh, modern game chat. Oh yeah. But well, some people disagreed with us. Some people agreed with us. Some I, people I, really liked what I had to say. So I thought it made for good radio. But uh, uh, you're on watch, Christian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just so yeah. you know. No, just kidding. Uh, we'll be. We'll be fine. So today's episode is all about speedruns and. Uh, this episode actually comes to us from a backer, and that is uh, Nick Maragos, who's a friend of the show, uh, Atlas employee, and a former uh, uh, games journalist. And, and he's, uh, he he's actually actu- he's actually been on the show. He was on the oh. uh, Shin Megami Tensei episode a long time okay. ago. That is fitting, then. Well, Nick didn't give me a blurb to read, but I thought I'd sort of kind of break this down for our listeners who might be wondering, like, why are we doing an episode about speedruns outside of the fact that someone paid us for it? Well... Um, speedruns, and I'm kind of going to be specifically, specifically looking at the Speed Demos Archive and Awesome Games Done Quick um, material. I, I think more than anything else, more than us even, if you could believe it or not, as, mu- as much work as we've been doing, uh, speedruns have made classic gamings more relevant than, than they've ever been. Um, I'm throwing that out there. Do we have any disagreements yet? I'm just curious. Hmm. I would say I, mean, I would say they they've helped make video games more yes. relevant than ever. I wouldn't credit them single-handedly though. No, not single-handedly, but I think like more than anything in recent memory, uh, I feel like especially the Twitch streams, um the awesome games done quick things, things like Twitch uh, plays Pokemon, um things like that, I feel like they are making uh, retro games more relevant yeah. than before. I mean, I was thinking about it, but you're probably more right than than nothing cuz yeah. Uh, yeah, it definitely well, gets the mass media caring about them a bit more. Yeah. Not Although just that, which plays Pokemon is like the opposite of a speed run. It's a slow run. Mm. Yeah. That is that's very true. But uh, I, I think ahead, what, what I was gonna say is that like seeing people who are like not there at the time playing games they weren't there at the time for, like I'm not sure what else really inspires that besides like, yeah, sure there's people who have like a, a respect for history or whatever. Yeah. And, like are yeah. curious about the foundations of, of whatever, but you definitely see people, I don't know, getting interested in games that they like were too young for at the time, and I, th- I think that really helps. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I noticed um, and that I feel really great about because uh, I, I see these people that are, you know, 10 to 15 years younger than me getting into these games that they were maybe, like, three or four when they came out. And I'm the same way. Like, I play a lot of games that were barely... I, w- I was barely in existence when these things came out. So I feel like I'm glad this trend isn't dying with our generation. I'm glad that, yeah. like, you know, younger people are picking up on these things. And I know we have a lot of younger listeners. Um, maybe not a lot of younger listeners, but we have some younger listeners. Not just that, but I think people can also, like, see what the games have to offer because I think a lot of people... You know, the nature of the game space is... And this isn't just... Y- younger people, but people seem to think that like games are ever marching forward, and they are in certain ways. But that doesn't mean the old games were like, you know, 
so limited or so uninteresting. And I think yeah. that this allows people to see that there's a lot to them. I, yeah. I like that uh, line of thought. Sorry, go ahead, Ray. It'd be different if there were Atari 2600 speedruns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> oh, like, uh, it. they'd be very, all very short, I yeah. think. Or I they mean, just wouldn't end. Meanwhile, we have stuff like Yoshi's Island, which is like this gorgeous game. And yeah. yeah. People can get into that. Yeah, I, I really like what Christian said, and maybe Jeremy, if you want to comment on this, that um, I feel like it's a fallacy to feel like, oh, games are just going to keep getting better because in many ways they haven't. And, you know, go back to our prep episode, listen to the small diversion <laughs> that we had there, which I, which I agreed with and which I look back and I'm glad we had that conversation. But I feel like it is a fallacy to think that, oh, you know, video games are just going to keep getting better over time because there's a lot of kinds of games that we've lost that are only coming back yeah. into fashion now. And I think speedruns like this help us remember, like, oh, there's these games are so complicated and there's so much to them that, you know, you could look at them, oh, it's just a 2D platformer, who cares? But yeah. Yoshi's Island is an, an extremely technically complex game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they still had to do actual software engineering. Yeah, yeah. There <laughs> wasn't just some, like, middleware platform you mm-hmm. they could just cram things into. Exactly. Uh, Jeremy, any more thoughts on this? I mean, that's kind of an oversimplification. It's not like when someone licenses the Unreal Engine, they're just like, slap some content into the engine, and hey, we got we got ourselves a game, and look at everyone's ropey veins. I mean, Well, it's, Unreal is different from Game Maker, which is a bit, <laughs> tiny bit sure, more. Sure, sure. But I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think, trying to I think, um, convince people that. <laughs> I don't know. The, the idea that games are going to get better is, is a fallacy, but I mean, some games will be better, some games will be worse. It just depends on the effort and the discipline put into them. And, you know, I think speedruns are valuable because they're an opportunity to look back and see classic games and the way they work and the things that people did right and wrong and learn from those things. I mean, you know, yeah. video game history is a continuum and people who are making games now need to know, you know, they need to be grounded in history and, and context and precedent and be able to make decisions based on that. So, you know, in, in, that, in that regard, I think there's a lot of value for anyone to watch speedruns or, you know, just to play old video games. Really, what? I just meant as a creative medium. I think that's the difference. Like, we have this assumption, like, like phones, like smartphones are always going to be getting better, which is like broadly true, right? Or something, something technical, or like you know, systems are always getting more, going to be getting more powerful because they are. But I guess like the point is, since it's a creative medium, like that's not the same. You don't like say books are always getting better. Like <laughs> the newest books are much better than the old books. So right? many new fonts to choose from, you know? Yeah, it's <laughs> like so. I think that there's a there's a. Uh, Yes. What does better mean this week on Retronauts? Yeah. Better. Let's define that for the let's next get, hour. More scrolls. Let's get back to this. Webster's defines better as... God, Derrida, that reminds me of grad school. But yeah. yes, uh, Jeremy <laughs> is correct in that uh, one of the greatest things I think about, I mean, they're fun to watch, but all, they also, they kind of give us an idea as to how these things are made and put together, especially yeah. with some of the more notable speedruns we'll talk about later, like Zelda Ocarina of Time, where the game, you have not seen a more broken apart game than Zelda Ocarina of Time. Maybe there are some others, but I feel like that's one of the prime examples of just like, they really figured out how to break this game just yeah. because it's such an early 3D game. But And that will give you some idea like, oh, this is how games are made. These are like certain things. These what like what event flags are this is what you know this is this is how the game language works i can't do this or the game will shut down because it's looking for this variable Mm -hmm. and it can't find it there are many examples of that but someone who doesn't know a lot about programming i I know dick about programming Mm -hmm. but when i watch a speed run i'm kind of keyed into like oh this is how like a programming language kind of works just like there's all these like commands and variables and these people know how to exploit those and maybe they're not thinking that deeply but they're using the language of the game to sort of break it apart so bob a question for you are sure, we differentiating in this episode between speedruns, time attacks, tool-assisted speedruns, et cetera, et cetera? Because we, we kind of covered speedruns in an older episode of Retronauts, and there was a lot of... There were 
a, a few complaints because we didn't really differentiate between speed runs and tool assisted playthroughs and that sort of thing. And and there I is a difference, you know, a, a speed run in the the sort of classic sense is someone sitting down with a game on a console or an emulator or whatever and just getting through it to the best of their abilities. Whereas, you know, tool assisted attacks are people mess around down to the frame to exploit games as much as possible and, and do things that aren't technically even possible on a console because they require such precise timing to exploit glitches and things like that. And luck. And luck, also. yes. Because they, yeah. they use it as a luck generator <laughs> right, to right. always get the best possible outcome right. of any random number sequence. Right, your first uh, battle on the moon in Final Fantasy IV. Hey, it's Pink Puff. Oh, and he dropped a tail. How about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm glad you asked that because we'll be talking a bit about this later, but I feel that tool-assisted speedruns um, can have just as much merit as a, you know, live uh, non-tool-assisted speedrun just because I think the the live uh, player, I, I guess, I don't know how to say this, the, non, the non-assisted speedrun is more about performance, and I think the tool-assisted speedrun is more about competence where it's just like, I'm going to figure out frame by frame the mathematically perfect way to play through this game and to me that is sort of admirable if it is maybe a little bit obsessive and even fastidious for someone like me yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i mean um my, my question was not to disparage any one form just as just you know say that they are different things and yeah yeah uh, they are different to to make that clarification this time around because i right. apparently dropped the ball last time Come on, Jeremy. Well, I mean, I did want to point out that, I mean, people do disparage tool-assisted speedruns, but they take a, a whole different set of skills than, you know, the non-assisted speedruns. But we will talk a tiny bit more about that later. But I did want to first go into, before we talk about broadly speedruns, let's talk about the history of speedruns. So as with like almost everything related to video games, we can kind of uh, tie this back to Doom. I, I mean, sorry, not video games, but the internet. I feel like the internet was built to play Doom and talk about Mystery Science Theater and The Simpsons in in the early nineties. Uh, that mean, was that was actually Al Gore's intention. Yes. Yeah, he yeah. was. He's a huge nerd, and I know that. But like as as always, you can trace this back to Doom um, because Doom let players record demo files of their games in like a completely forward thinking way. Like this was not something that happened with games, did it? recording recording demos using using like you weren't recording movies you're recording basically right, the the, your input and then the game would take that input and like recreate it for you yeah i'm trying um, to think of another game that did that and i know there must be something that had something like this like someone's going to chime in, in like in the comments or something and say but i cannot think of of a game that had that yeah hmm. i can't i can't think of any precedents i know marathon did that afterwards but you know that was a year later and obviously right. picked up its inspiration from doom but I mean, you know, even even as someone who is kind of outside the Doom continuum because of my insistence on using a Macintosh, uh, you know, the the fact that Marathon did the same thing kind of gave me that same experience and let me watch other people who could play video games so much more effectively than me just breeze through yeah. these incredibly difficult stages. It was it was pretty awesome. Yeah, there was no, I mean, I'm trying to think like there was no. 
way. I mean, people could usually just like, I mean, for consoles, people could have hooked up a VCR to mm -hmm. the console, and I did record gameplay footage sometimes, but like, right. then do nothing with it because there was no way to share it with anybody. You could send it to Nintendo Power or something well, like they, that. Yeah, like yeah. they didn't, there was no, there wasn't, there wasn't even like a TV show that, you know, there were some early 90s TV shows, but nothing that took reader input. Like, I don't think anything like that. It was, right. It was purely marketing based type crap. Yeah, and I, I mean, this really, I mean, this is like the 28.8 kilobaud days of the internet, maybe 14.4 if you were kind of unfortunate. Um, or maybe, yeah, I'm not sure of the history of modems, just go with me on this. But these these uh, demo files were extremely tiny. They were not the size of a video file because, as we said, they're just a set of instructions. Like, these are all the, the keys the players pressed in this level, and it recreates that perfectly, you know. Right. So this is a way for people to share their movies. Like, look what I did on this level. And because Doom had such a huge uh, user-generated map, community like gigantic massive i mean like people were trading maps back and forth there were there were sites that reviewed maps if you can just think about that if sure. that, i mean i'm sure they, they still exist today but just such a different kind of like gaming environment i mean yeah. it's, it's probably the closest equivalent uh, although probably on a much bigger scale at this point is uh the, the minecraft community with some oh, yeah. sharing and swapping but um you know christian mentioning vhs uh recordings of video games kind of got me thinking and I'm I'm almost positive that there were a few magazines or publications that would do, you know, high score contests and in order to verify your high score you had to record it on VHS tape. I can't remember specifically, but I know I've seen I had seen that, you know, mentioned in the past so that they could verify that you weren't cheating or anything like that. So, that's probably the closest precedent there was and that was much, you know, that was very finite and it was really just for verification. Yeah, if you've seen King of Kong, you know that still happens. Yeah, yeah. So. They are still using VHS tapes. There's that shot in King of Kong of the guy's really, really depressing apartment mm -hmm. where there are just VHS tapes stacked against every wall. Like, yeah. he is going to be killed by those one day. That's going to be sad. <laughs> but let's move on to the next point. Um, so basically, yes, I mean, players were recording themselves. And weirdly enough, they would have to, like, authenticate their runs by, like, I'm going to do this little dance, and that will tell you that I'm playing this. I didn't, I didn't just steal this demo file from someone else and submit this under my name. Okay. So, yeah, this led to a competitive gaming scene based around a few websites where players would uh, submit their files to prove their achievements on various maps. So basically, players created leaderboards before game publishers did or game developers did like these leaderboards exist, existed outside of the game on a website but you would basically just be like oh here's my demo file here's the map I was assigned um, mm -hmm. as a test and this is what I ranked so it was kind of like leaderboards uh, you know before official leaderboards happened well the 90s PC game scene for shooters like the the Venn diagram between who's a developer and who's a player was like it, well now I'm good like, it was ambiguous <laughs> yeah like the yeah. point is like there was a lot of bleed over and there was like people sort of sort of developers and modders became developers and people like player you know what i mean like people were just like i want to make a game like this you know like it was yeah. semi feasible and like the it, games were much more malleable like and you the could community really was much more part of the game right right and and in like a features like this really you know supported that idea that players could you know have these existing communities outside of the game and like i think even like Online services like uh, God help me out here. Like, was Nuke one of them? I mean, I think you oh, ever, like, Nuke is, I mean, I, the thing like, is, like, I, I didn't play PC games at all in the nineties. Yeah, so I'm the wrong person to ask unless I just remember from like picking it from the air, right? Or, you and know, I, knowing well, it. But. Uh, wait, what are you trying to say? I'm trying to like I'm saying that like uh, these leaderboards were never part of games this early, but these sure. online services that you played games through, they had their own leaderboards. Oh, yeah. oh like Dwango? So I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dwango, yeah, you said ten as well. I think I think I said Nuke. Was that one of them? No. 
I just remember like when I would buy. No, no, we talked about that. Okay. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just remember when I would when I would get like FPSs in the '90s for the PC. They would always have their own like client. Well, there's also GameSpy. Yeah, GameSpy, RIP. That just bit the dust recently, right? Uh, Or it's on its way out. By the time this episode goes live, yes, it will have been dead for about a week. So, two weeks. The GameSpy has been laid to rest. So yes, um, another casualty of of the Cold War. Yes, it's all, it's all very sad. The cold war between mobile and console, really, <laughs> actually. <laughs> it feels more like a hot war to me. But uh, So one of the bigger sites was, and I hope I'm saying this right, but it's called Competen uh, or Competen? Competen. Competen? Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's all caps, C-O-M-P-E-T hyphen N. We'll just call it Competen. Do they have an about page? Let's <laughs> yeah, maybe it's like, uh, maybe Wikipedia Voice will tell you how to, how to say it, but... It was basically the first real speedrunning site in 1994. That's when it came out. And um, and it's still online. Like, I went there. The last update was um, maybe in January. But um, it's still being updated. The internet was dis- I had to have been a necessary component for this. Because, like, yes. what's funny is, like, back in 91, like I, had a, like, I had a bunch of friends over. And I'm sure a lot of people did stuff like this. But, like, there was no way to, to sync it up. Like, I had a bunch of friends over. We had two Super Nintendos. We both put in Super Mario World. We started at the same time and we raced to see who could beat uh, it first. Okay, wow. Okay, that is yeah. That's now a, a thing at Awesome yeah. Games Done. <laughs> but like, we didn't. Th- it didn't go any further because it was like me and four friends who were there and like we did it once and we right. thought it was cool and like. But like what could, like you know that like what could we do with that? Nothing yeah, unless yeah. you're gonna like try to invent a scene. Which yeah, we, you were you were sitting there thinking, boy, <laughs> I could probably make money off this someday. Little did you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, tens of thousands of people will be willing to watch you do that with your friends. Yeah. Well, the, the good news is I won, and uh, since we only did it once, I am the champion of my <laughs> friends yeah. of Super Mario World. Of course, why well, you brought it up? Yeah, <laughs> bragging rights <laughs> well, officially. It's funny. It's just it's funny. Like I brought it up because it's like, oh, this like I just it's something I thought of. I was watching AGDQ. I'm like. Oh, uh, I guess that could have become a thing if I had only thought about it, you know, or like, you know, but of course I didn't. Yeah. So Christian Nutt, possible inventor of the no. of the race <laughs> speed run. No, no, not at all. I won't put that out there. I'm sorry. So, yeah, this brings us to one of the biggest um, one of the biggest and best uh, speed run sites. And that is the Speed Demos Archive. And we'll be spending a lot of the episode talking about them. Uh, they basically became a thing with the June 1997 release of a video called Quake Done Quick which is one of the most popular speed runs ever because it's sort of like the first major one. Um, gaming media jumped on this immediately, like magazines reported on it, uh, websites did as well. And the Speed of Demos archive ended up getting really huge. And they would eventually host speed runs of other games and not just in demo form. So as people started getting broadband internet, they would have like AVI files. And they would always have, well, not always, but like sometimes the, the runner would provide commentary on a separate page. So you'd, you would watch the video and you'd be reading commentary as the video would play. Later on, that'd be integrated in the video itself with things like YouTube annotations and things like that. But um, yeah, so that's basically the, the, the really brief history of speedruns. Um, started with Doom and then eventually expanded everything else once we got the cap- capacity to you know download videos and stream videos and things like that. Yes, especially Metroid, and I know we'll talk about it, but yeah. Yes, exactly. Like Super Metroid, Metroid Prime are big ones as well. Well, Ray, let's talk about that now. All right. <laughs> because that's my, that's my first point. I mean, okay, like I said, this is going to be a really broad topic. I'm not sure if I told the audience that. I told you guys that. And I was worried that this this episode would not stretch our normal time, and I'm hoping it will. But I just have a lot of random points I want to hit because this topic includes a lot of stuff, and um, it's all pretty interesting. So let's start with Metroid, Ray. Yeah, no, you. Go on. <laughs> Go on, Ray. 
Okay. I'm, I'm just going to read your notes. Oh, sure. I'll read my notes, too. Uh, well, Metroid, I, I feel it was the game that didn't know it was, it was a speedrun. I mean, yeah. the, all the elements of a speedrun were in the game without the designers understanding what a speedrun was. I mean, obviously, the point of the game is um, get through it as fast as you can. But there are so many things in Metroid that were like are now parts of speedruns. So we have, uh, you know, sequence breaking, which I, that, I guess that term was invented with um, Metroid Prime speedruns. That makes that, sense. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It first came up when that happened. Um Glitches, for better or worse. I mean, Met- Metro games have a lot of glitches just because the games are just kind of complicated as far as, like, a 2D game goes. Especially the NES one. <laughs> yes, especially the NES one. I've seen some great videos of that. And and a timer that actually has some effect on the game. So there are these yeah. three mega elements. Yeah, even Super Metroid actually gives I don't think... I can't remember if Metroid NES gives you a time. It doesn't. Super Metroid actually gives you a time. Oh, it doesn't? Like a, okay. Like a cumulative... Like, when you beat Super Metroid, it tells you exactly how long it took. Right. And it gives you a percentage, too. And yeah. and that is... I forgot to write that down, but that's also another thing. It's like, this is my 100% speedrun of blah, blah, blah. This is my any yeah. percent speedrun of blah, blah, blah. So I think they took sort of the the language of Metroid and kind of incorporated into, like, what a speedrun should be. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I had a friend who was, the, the, like, a super, super Metroid fan, and he, like, he remembered his times. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he would play it over and over again, and, like, to him, like, bettering his time was the thing. But again, there was no culture around it when the, right. he was playing on the Super Nintendo on a cartridge pre-internet video. You yeah. know what I mean? Start, starting so with it, Metroid it, Fusion, the uh, the developers actually became savvy to the concept of, of uh, speedruns and uh, Metroid Fusion and, and Metroid Zero Mission both give you alternate endings if you manage to complete the games in various combinations of percentage and time. Like if you have a really low time and a really low percentage, then you'll get a special ending. If you have low time, high percentage, you'll get a special ending, so on and so forth. So, I mean, the, the, the developers actually understand, you know, that's part of the appeal of the series and has, has embraced that, which I think is really cool. Yeah, and I mean, you can go online today and people are still doing Super Metroid speedruns or still doing Metroid Prime speedruns. Um, I mean, Metroid is one of the more popular speed games to speedrun. And, uh, like, I was just watching one today, and, like, I do want to talk about, we're going to talk about, like, the specifics of, of speedruns, but it is amazing just what people can figure out on their own, like, through their own testing. Like, if you watch a Super Metroid speedrun now, you're going to see Samus waggling her gun up and down for the entire game because that, that shaves off, like, two frames for, yeah. like, walk cycle. Uh-huh. And even that much time is important for people trying to break these records. Yeah. Like, finding the most efficient way to do things, even if it's monotonous and, like, just tedious and awful, they will do it to get that, those few seconds shaved off. It reminds me yeah. of like playing Gran Turismo or something, you know? Right. Well, there's no big, um, like they were saying this in the Super Metroid speedrun, there's like no big gains to be made anymore. Basically what, what it is is that like people have figured out all the, I mean, maybe someone hit, will hit like one secret new thing, but like once they do, everyone will know it. But like there's no big gain to be made on time. What they're doing yeah. now is trying to shave off every fraction of a second because cumulatively it'll matter. Right. I mean, everyone has the their routes figured out by now, the most efficient routes period for any anything. And now it's just like all performance based. Like I cannot mess up once. I have to make sure I do this 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 fist pumping thing throughout the entire game. So, yeah, there's so much nuance to all these things.
are going to move on to tool-assisted speedruns now. And uh, so we, we talked about what they are uh, maybe like yeah. 20 minutes ago. But in case you weren't paying attention, it's basically someone going through a game frame by frame. And this has to be done on an emulator. I think yeah. it's important to mention. Yes. It cannot I, be done with a live game. Yeah, I don't know how you <laughs> would do it unless you were like uh, some kind of soldering expert. Like I can, right. I can actually stop my NES. Or you construct uh, a robot or something. Yeah. They did that actually. Have you seen that? Uh, I've seen, yeah. On AGDQ, they actually, people made, well, it's not like the, really a robot. They symbolized it with a rob but yeah. like uh, uh, okay. uh, they created a thing that can like interface with the NES and that's true yeah. and they record their like their own run and they feed it into this thing and then it plays the uh, but oh, anyway, that's amazing. That reminds me of like seven or eight years ago. There was a, a robot that could play any rock band song or whatever yeah. on any like difficulty. A, it was like a. a, a, a I know that person. Oh wait, you mean a real robot? Oh, okay. <laughs> they use like an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi, like one of those yeah. tiny computers that you. Yeah, it was program. Arduino. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, basically they go through a game frame by frame. So let's let's say we're playing Mario Brothers. It's like okay, on this frame the input will be right. On this frame it'll be right again. But on this frame I need to turn back so I can clip through this block or hit this one thing. So they're literally playing through a game like as they're playing through like a cartoon or something. Like every every frame of the screen is a, is a different and meaningful piece of this puzzle that they're putting together eventually to make a quote unquote perfect speed run. Right. But when you watch the game, like when you watch the recording, it, you you don't see it in a frame. You see the game playing itself in like an impossibly perfect way essentially, yeah, yeah. which yeah. is the important thing. And I think it's really funny when you watch one for an RPG because, for example, like if the game has random encounters, they'll like get an encounter the lowest possible frequency or whatever, and then they'll <laughs> always do a critical and kill like the first boss in like one hit, which you yeah. would never get the luck to do that in real right. life. But you get to see them do that because they manipulated, you know, what they really did was play the game, do the last, like do the boss battle like 500 times until they actually did get perfect luck, like with the first hit, like stop there. This is my new starting point for my next continuation you know, hit it again for a critical or whatever. So right. they beat the boss in three hits, it looks like. But that really took them however goddamn long it took them to actually get that kind of luck in real life. They're yeah. just recording it in the smallest possible increment. Yeah, and like Christian is saying, there there's a lot of work put into these. So people that disrespect these things, I don't understand because these people are figuring out how to do these things in a different way, in a, in a, in a, in a different but still, I think, admirable way. And a lot of this is figuring out, like, uh, we're going to bring up some, uh, some kind of uh, vocab for this, uh, but like random number generators. Like, uh, so much of games are based on random number generators. And these people have to figure out, like, what is seeding this generator? What action or mm -hmm. what variable is seeding this to produce this thing that will eventually affect me later down the line? So it's like, if I do this, then I'll have this look. If I do that, then I'll have that look. So people yeah. have to figure that thing. There's, like, so many puzzles to crack within these games. Like That actually affects things in, sorry, in, in non-tool speedruns, too. Like, I remember I was watching AGDQ last year, and what you name your character in Pokemon actually affects, or right. you know what I mean? Like, can affect randomness it's because yeah. the stuff that the people figure out we can get into that later but yeah both yeah. these things really tie into like what drives the uh, makings of like game genie and other like game enhancer stuff because mm. those things are analyzing every bit of data that is different compared to the last frames bit of data and just you know di uh, measuring all those differentials and just so you know finding things that can be modified. Yeah, it's hacking what's in memory, essentially. Yeah. Right, that's right. what a game genie does. It like, replaces bits in memory with different bits to change the effect. That's, that's a simple way to put it. Yeah, thank you. And like, <laughs> things like that <laughs> really teach you how games are made because yeah. like, I, when I got Monster Hunter uh, 3U a year ago, uh, I was like reading what I had to do before I played and there was like this 30-step process to get the best maximum stats that involved like setting your Wii U game clock to midnight on this day and then yeah. starting this character, then racing the character. 
project and then starting it again as a different gender and then you know like it was a 30 step process just to get a minor stat boost I never yeah. went through with it but people were acting like it was like the most important thing yeah. ever <laughs> same thing with that that, that freaking Zodiac Spear in Final Fantasy 12 mm-hmm. people act like a lot of things yeah yeah they do <laughs> they <laughs> are certainly do that are maybe not as important as they think they are but not to yeah I mean in the end you can enjoy Monster Hunter without doing this yeah exactly <laughs> and, I, and I have definitely just like they're, they're oh, sorry, go ahead Jeremy the, um, I was just going to say the methodology of, of uh, tool-assisted playthroughs has actually crept into a lot of games, kind of like you've, what you've mentioned. But uh, you know, one of the one of the big exploits in Dragon Quest IX was getting one of those uh, shareable maps from people, and there's basically like a number of frames based on when you start one floor of a labyrinth determines what's in a in a chest. So people have figured out ways to very precisely get all the items even like the super rare stuff in this game through this one map because of the way the the uh generator works off the frame rate or the, you know the the frame buffer or whatever so it, it's yeah. it's you know it's something that for the sake of recording you definitely need an emulator but you know people bring that back into live console situations which is kind of uh kind of impressive um a little a little more fussy than i really want to mess with but i'm, I'm curious which uh which was the first emulator to include playback was it nesticle i would think i remember it being a function of nesticle i'm not sure when it came around uh man i've not said that word and i've been happy to not have to say <laughs> that word for a long time you haven't said genesis either probably but uh <laughs> now it's coming up yeah I, I would say probably nesticle or there was that one japanese famicom emulator that came out before nesticle did that have a movie feature? Yeah, I, I was trying to think about it. It was one of the, it was one of those early offshoots. Yeah, I, I played around with that because I don't think Nesticle had a uh, disc system support early on. Yeah, and I wanted to play Doki Doki Panic because you, you everyone uh-huh. has to at some point, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, tool sets at speedruns are are different beast, and uh, the tricks in these aren't necessarily limited to these kind of speedruns, like Jeremy and Christian and Ray were saying. And people are even counting frames in things like Super Metroid. They're counting frames in, like, Zelda Ocarina of Time. In fact, in Zelda Ocarina of Time, which we'll get to next, people... The game has has a pause button that brings you to a menu. And you can literally, like, if you're fast enough, go one frame at a time. That's what these people are doing mm-hmm. in the game, just, yeah. like, advancing the frames one at a time to get to the frame that they need to get to <laughs> yes. to do the next action. So they're really using these kind of tricks in their speedruns if the game will allow it. And Zelda 64 is the perfect game for this kind of thing. I think the big other difference between tool-assisted and non-tool-assisted that we can get to is that, like, Tool assisted allows you to do things that like human beings fingers cannot right, do fast right. enough. Like there are things that you could do if you could move it like, you know, if you could perceive and move reliably at one sixtieth of a second or whatever to like get through walls and shit. And like tool assisted speedruns allow you like allow players to break games in ways that are just not possible for for people to actually break when they're doing real yeah. like real like by real I mean real time yeah. speed runs. And like that's why they're different and sort of also valuable, I think, is because you can really see how people can just completely manhandle and destroy a game and like and really dig down into like the weird bugs and glitches that just are not accessible in a real-time playthrough. I think that's why the majority of speedrunners I see on AGDQ, um, they're like 20 years old because they, they uh-huh. still have like the insane young person reflexes. Oh, I was in, thinking like, about this. We were watching Yushi's Island last night and like um, he was like shaking his hands out and stuff and like... You know, in between levels. Oh, yeah, Because yeah. his fingers are starting to hurt. And I'm like, it's almost like a pro athlete. Like, this dude's hands are not going to hold up. Yeah, you know what I mean, mean? After a certain point, he's going to have to retire. There, there is training involved. Like, I see people, like, fidgeting with the controllers, like, in between, like, lack of action so they don't, like, freeze up. So they're, like, they'll be hitting buttons back and forth when yeah. nothing is happening just to be like, yeah. I have to keep my hands moving. Yeah, I'm warning you guys. Like, I'm 36 now. I'm about to turn 37, and my hands are not what they used to be. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. sorry. 
<laughs> like, yeah. I, even just playing games normally, I'm not a speedrunner, but just, like, long gaming sessions and whatever, like, my hands cramp up, and they, they're just not as spry as they once were. The human hand was not designed for video games. No. <laughs> that, hey, that, you're making, like, a touchscreen argument now, back. Oh, God, no. You're bringing I, I, up the, it's the hot war. I didn't mean to do that again. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, buttons are good. Buttons are God here. <laughs> right? Yeah. I hope so. I love buttons. Yes. So I guess, I mean, we covered tool-assisted speedruns. It's going to be a minor part of this episode, but I did want to bring it up. They are different, but I think, like I said, they're more about competence. They're more about figuring out how a game works. Not to say that the other mm-hmm. ones aren't, but there's so, there's so much more of a performance element it's in, a the, different in the live speedruns. It's competence. Yes, like, yes. It's like the difference between, like, a dancer and a hacker or something. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I feel like these guys are a much less performance-based, and they're more if it's more of, like, a programmer's mindset. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, I've never done it. I've never seen it done, but it feels like it takes so much work. It would have to. But the training takes work, too. So Even you know. for, like, a simple game, like a short game, like, when I see people, like, play through, like, long RPGs or something, like a task, that's one thing. But, like, even, like, getting through, like, I don't know, a relatively short game, like, you can beat Super Mario Brothers 1 in, what, like, 20 minutes, 10 yeah, if you warp yeah. or something? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that alone probably has to take hours of work, let alone playing through, like, Dragon Quest 1 or whatever. Who knows? And uh, before we drop this topic, the, the first major speedrun, uh, tool-assisted speedrun, was for Mario 3. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. And when it came out that it wasn't done by a human, there was scandal. So I, I think that's where the scandal, <laughs> this this kind of weird, you know, feud comes from, where there, people were the people felt like they were cheated in some yeah. way. But I feel like that was still, like, a, an amazing thing to do. It's like, wow, these, these, these levels are, like, 10 seconds long if you really know what you're doing, you know? It really yeah. kind of... But then, you know, the dust settles, and it's like, oh, okay, well, this is still kind of cool. Yeah. We can still do yeah. this with other was games, that, et cetera. So. Was that the... Uh, Super Mario Brothers 3 finished in like 20 minutes from about 10 years ago yeah it was like 2003 I think that it came out and uh, there was much fear over it after it was like it was done by a robot and then, you know, torches and pitchforks and whatnot. But uh, we, we, we all got over it as a country, I think. I don't think yeah. they really cared in the Bible Belt. <laughs> I remember I remember being impressed by that and then feeling a little surprised when I discovered that it was uh, tool-assisted. But I wouldn't say I felt betrayed. I was just like, oh, well, that's a little disappointing. But actually, that's still kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, when I found out the difference, like, I was like, oh, okay. And then I sort of recalibrated my thinking. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It shows you how good a game like Mario 3 is, though, that it could be just, like, plowed through so gracefully, you know? Just, like, I feel like it <laughs> yeah. kind of really makes the design, you know, shine in, in these games where even, like, something like Mega Man 2 or 3 where it's a little glitchier than uh, Mario 3, seeing a, uh, seeing a task for one of those makes you kind of even respect the design even more. Just like, wow, this is, this is actually possible, you know, if you're a computer, and it still makes the game look fun. So let's move on to the next topic. Um, Zelda and Mario 64... Uh, they have to be the most broken games ever. And um, I should have said this before I started, so I apologize for saying this now, but um, on our blog post for this episode, you go to retronauts.com to find that, there's going to be a number of links to speedruns because if you don't think you're into these, you have to watch some of the more weirder and out there ones like the Zelda 64 and Mario 64 ones because they are really entertaining. I also recommend the Wind Waker. I don't know if you're getting this. Yes. The GameCube Wind Waker. Oh, man. Specifically GameCube. Actually, it's funny. I don't want to interrupt. Oh, no, go ahead. But like this year, um, I can't remember his name. I'm sorry. The uh, speedrunner. Cosmo. Cosmo. Yeah. He did um, last year, AGDQ, he did GameCube Wind Waker, which is glitchy as shit. And this year he did the the Wii U HD remake, and I got bored because, and it's not his fault. He's still like a virtuoso at playing. Oh Wind god, Waker, yeah, he's amazing. But like Nintendo fixed all the bugs, so it's yeah. not fun. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I, I think he played the IQ version of uh, Ocarina of Time last yeah. year or this year because uh, like the Chinese text made things go a little faster. Right. That's oh, that's the, amazing. That's yeah. one of the key things. Yeah. That's yeah actually, it's funny. They usually play the Japanese versions of shit because it um, shit. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> usually play the Japanese versions of wonderful games because the text goes faster. 
and uh, almost always play the Japanese version, but they'll talk about it. And, like, with the HD Wind Waker, they're paying one of the Romance language versions of it because, like, that oh, is actually the Oh, it was, like, Italian or something, I think. Or maybe not Italian, yeah. but, like... Portuguese yeah. or something. I think it might have been Portuguese. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like it, they pick it based specifically on how fast the text goes. That's yeah. really the issue. But with, um, I mean, you guys so, have seen these auto six. Oh, sorry, so, so you're saying no one's going to speedrun Xenogears with the U.S. version? Uh, no. Oh, God, <laughs> Xenogears is slightly less slow run. God, I, w- I, would, I wonder what that would look like. I've not seen it. I, I watched the speedrun for Chrono Trigger last year, and I thought that was kind of long. But, um, God, Xenogears. <laughs> Pack a lunch for that one. All right, so Zelda 64... I have seen this game um, played about a billion different ways, and it is just so fascinating because it really gives you a, a look into the the mindset or at least the development world of Nintendo 64 at that time where I feel like they do not have the tools that they have now, so the games are mu- much less sophisticated. So breaking this game, all it takes is figuring out how to, how to clip through things and how, how to find like where the doorways are that bring you to yeah, other places, that's basically. That's how Mario 64 is, too. Yeah. And the funny thing is I think it's not just the tools but also their expectations of players and stuff. Like... And this this counts for all games, but like especially back then, like they did not really think about people like, deliberately trying to break the shit out of the game. Oh yeah, which yeah. Is like, why would they? Right. Yeah. That's that's like the joy of playing Zelda is like discovering you know how to get through Zelda le- the legitimate way for most people, right? So, like, uh, yeah, they just did not anticipate this, of course. But like, thus, they didn't have the same kind of probably fastidiousness about debugging. And they, as you said, I'm sure they didn't have the tools. Either. Right. Right. I'm sure, they tried their best. But I mean, yeah. again, like as we've already said, it's like you you move things into like this 3D world where you can you know theoretically explore however you more freely than you ever could before. And uh, you know, even though Nintendo has this I don't know kind of world famous debugging team in Japan, it's like you know th- what can they really figure out? What can they really <laughs> How many checks can they really check off the list? You yeah. Know? Well, it's funny because if you, I was right before I got here, I was watching speed run of um, of Sunshine, Super Mario Sunshine. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. Which I really like that game a lot. And um, but like he was talking about how like, oh yeah, I could clip through this wall and get to this trigger, but the trigger's not there until I actually get enough shines to open it. You know, like basically, what yeah. they, their ha- their way around this was they did, they knew they couldn't stop people from clipping through walls if they were totally crazy and aiming for it. So instead, like they just made it so that like shit didn't spawn until you actually got the requisite yeah right. amount of shines or whatever. So you couldn't because like if you watch a Mario sixty four speed run and if you haven't, you really have to. Yeah, th- um, yeah. Oh god. Like, <laughs> uh, but like in Mario sixty four, you can literally just like if you know what you're doing, you can just like shove yourself through walls and like zip backwards upstairs at 600 million miles an hour and end up in, like, the second half of the game. And, like, they made it so essentially that even if you did that in Sunshine, like, they restructured the whole world map and everything to an extent around this. I mean, that wasn't probably the only reason. Right. I'm sure maybe the, you know, development was more sophisticated. So maybe that was their intent all along, but they just couldn't do it in the past. In a way, I feel like Nintendo was at its most sophisticated with the GameCube games Mm. generation. But Hmm. that's just, like, a... Yeah. Well, you know, also years and years of everybody else learning how to make 3D games. Yeah, that too. That does Uh, help. But Bobby, you're calling these broken, and I know you're probably being a little tongue-in-cheek. Oh, yeah, I am. I am. Certainly the facade is not that broken. Oh, no, no. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, putting up like a a play set, you know, set on a play stage, you know, like a town, no, but behind it, it's just, you know, flat. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) I mean, uh, these... Two by four is holding it up. These tricks that I've seen in in Ocarina of Time, and I've played Ocarina of Time a number of times, I've never stumbled into them them on my own. Yeah. It takes like years of... It took years of study to crack this game open. It took like 15 years. I love the, the triggers and stuff. They find like I was watching the sunshine, like I said, just before I got here, and this is something you've seen all these things. Like one of the things he did was uh, there's like you know all the Mario 3D Mario games have races where you have to race something. Yeah. And he was doing this one with um, bloopers where you ride a blooper oh, yeah. through a, like sort of this maze like thing to get a shine. And what he did is he like jumped up over the wall 
and you think, okay, that's great. He's just going to run to where the, the shine spawns. But no, he had to go run over like two invisible triggers that were not marked by anything <laughs> that were like in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. He's just like, oh, getting the first invisible trigger. And he like runs over and runs over like a spot that looks like any other spot in this thing. And then he runs like, now I got the second one. And he like runs over in the other direction, finds the exact right spot, like runs Mario over it and then like runs to the end. But like if he didn't do that, the, the, the shine would not spawn. Yeah. So it's like. How much trial and error did these people fucking do to figure out where those two invisible triggers and how exactly. many... They also, how did they figure out there were two? Like, yeah, you know it, what I mean? It's Think not about just, that. They're not just good players. They they study these games. They train with these games. They figure out, how, like, every, like, how they work, how the programming works, things like that. Yeah, I mean, they, they may not be tool-assisted in the sense that we discuss them, but, I mean, they probably are using some tools, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I, mean, well, was, I don't know for sure. There was a guy at AGDQ, and I can't remember what game it was. I think it was Prime, yeah. He was using, he had, like, written a program, I think a Lewis script or something, to do, uh, to, to, that he fed numbers into to find out, like, what was sure. going to spawn at certain points. Okay. So it's tool, I mean, that's not a tool-assisted speedrun in the sense that we're using, but it's a speedrun assisted by a tool that some dude programmed mm-hmm. so he can play Metroid Prime at the yeah. optimal efficiency. They're know? not all savants. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't want to. But it's cool. I don't want to slander him. I don't think this is slander, but I, no, I think no. I think Cosmo, the, the Wind Waker speedrunner, was using Dolphin to figure out, like, to clip through things and figure out where the entrances were to things, where certain things were through the geometry. So I think he was using that to, like, study the game. Research, the, the emulator, yeah. yeah, which is, like, so fascinating to me. And just an example of how crazy, uh, before we move on to Mario 64, briefly, um, like Zelda Ocarina of Time, I watched a speedrun where someone beat the game without getting the sword, doing all the dungeons in reverse order. So they did, they did the all the adult version, sorry, all the adult dungeons first, then the child dungeons, and then they beat Ganon. Yeah, it's amazing using nothing but you know a controller. There's yeah. n- there's no game gene, there's no special cartridge, there's no emulator. It's just using the game's own rules. They were able to do all of these things, and that to me is just like. I am I am like just blown away when when a game can be broken that that horribly a game that is so well respected you know but yeah. obviously Nintendo could not prepare for this for people to study this game for two decades and figure out how everything works. It's also funny because I remember now I was watching the Twilight Princess speedrun this year's AGDQ and they like had to use the Japanese version not because of tech speed but because some of the bugs got fixed in mm. between the Japanese version and the and the, and the U.S. release which oh, yeah. wasn't yeah. that long you know between them you know what I mean yeah. yeah so it's like sometimes they have to use actually different versions of the game specifically for the bugs that appear only in like there was another game where they had to use the bi- a specific build even like the U.S. version like you have to make sure you have like a cartridge from the I think it might be uh, uh, Zelda um, Link to the Past like I think you need to have like mm. a, a cartridge you have to have the Japanese version of Link to the Past to do the speed run the way they do it but there was some other game also where you had to have like the first print run of the cartridge it might be the first print run of the Japanese version of Link to the Past wow. the only one that can be sp- <laughs> like some of the techniques don't work in the later yeah versions. yeah I mean these people have to keep track of versions of games back when Which that was not a published thing you could look up like this is 1.01 of Ocarina of Time like whatever like, I don't even know how like the thing is like you know the, it's not like the label changed. You no, know what I no. mean? So it's like these people are just randomly, like I'm assuming, buying random copies of Zelda off of eBay and hoping that the one they get is like version 1.00. Yeah, you know maybe I mean? when they pop it into a ROM dumper, they can look at the the header information or whatever. Right. But Because uh, uh, these people are all playing the games on the real hardware, so they need to, like, everyone brings down their own cartridge and plops it in the slot. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like this is not <laughs> a thing where people are, you know, they have to have their own equipment and play on real. Like one of the things of... AGDQ specifically, I don't know if it's part of the whole community. Is is you know, you're using the real thing, right? It's all it's all the real thing. I mean, like like I said, um, God, I forget what his name is. Uh, I think it was Cosmo, maybe not. Somebody was running. Uh, I think it was Cosmo doing Ocarina of Time with the IQ, but they were they were using all the authentic hardware and things like that. They're they're not about emulators because. 
you know, there's that slight degree of imperfection that emulator gives you that actually affects these people and what they do. Like, I don't see it, but I'm not breaking things down frame by frame, you know? Right. When, when it comes down to that, emulators are, you know, different. They're enough. an approximation. Yeah. They're, like, emulators, even the best emulator is an approximation of the performance of a real console. Also, it's probably worth mentioning for people who don't realize, the IQ is the Chinese version oh, of yeah. the N64. <laughs> like, it only came out, like, it's the version made with a partner in China. That It actually has different hardware, and it's kind of ridiculous looking, and I've... Uh, I've actually never seen one in person, and I would really like to to actually want to go back and watch this just out of curiosity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I brought up Mario sixty four, and again, like I feel like speed. I mean, I love Mario sixty four. It's one of my favorite games. It's one of the best games of all time, in my, in my you know humble opinion, and one of more, more important games of all time. But watching a speed run of this game really gives me a deeper admiration for just how uh, athletic and uh, intuitive the character is of uh, Mario in that game. Just the acrobat, like when you watch a speed run of Mario 64, it becomes this bizarre parkour game that I don't think Nintendo ever intended it to be. Right. I mean, he can wall kick, but you don't really use wall kicks that often in the game. But these right. people are like somersaulting, doing triple jumps, like twirling through things. Well, I uh, think it's a conflation <laughs> of things because I mean, Nintendo is, you know, it's very, it's a very well-known fact among the game development community that like one thing Nintendo is very, Nintendo does is like particularly with that game is they spent months like just perfecting Mario's moveset in a sandbox before right. they started building like the Peach's the game. Garden or whatever that's sort of like that was for the player but they had their own sort of right. yeah they had their own sandbox where they perfected Mario's 3D moveset because they knew that was going to be key to making the transition so yeah, that's yeah, one yeah. thing the second thing is they hadn't really perfected the like if you play Galaxy or if you play even Sunshine like but particularly Galaxy onward, like, the way Mario moves has been, like, so honed in that they have a specific, like, if you watch a Galaxy speedrun, like, you can't parkour like a crazy motherfucker the same way because they've actually sort of polished and polished and polished. And the Mario 64 was an incredibly polished game for the time, but it's so unpolished by modern standards. And I think the third thing is just the glitchiness, like... The the way you collision off certain surfaces uh, and certain things, like... The way the surfaces are programmed to for Mario to react, like I know, like the ice surface, like the way it was programmed in that game is like it's a downhill ice hill. Like you, yeah. like you're supposed to just basically stick to it and die. What I mean is like you, your butt falls on it. Mario is no longer controllable, and you just slide down it. But mm-hmm. somehow they know how to like just wiggle the stick or whatever and <laughs> get back off of it. Which you know, you, if you've played that game, you know that like once you hit the ice, you're just screwed. Yeah, because yeah. It's a giant pit underneath. But they know how to deal with it. And even like at the time, like I was playing. Mario 64 when it came out and like sometimes I would like and I think anyone who played it had this experience like you'd be like ah, I don't want to die and you'd like wiggle your stick and like once in like a blue moon like you'd save yourself or whatever right. but or these you, people know how to yeah. actually understand that interaction that you got by luck and freaking out like once every 20 times or, or you would just get somewhere you had you had no idea how you were able to get up there like I remember magazine saying like here's how you get to the top of the castle without getting 120 stars there's a way to do it mm-hmm. by being just acrobatic oh, yeah, yeah, enough yeah, but yeah, I mean yeah. like yeah. like you said I mean it was a fantastic game it still is but they did not have the tools available to make sure all of this stuff was not uh, all this stuff was preventable for players like making sure they can't get to all these places sorry Jeremy we've been talking a lot amongst ourselves uh, do you have any thoughts about uh, Zelda or Mario just being these these easily broken but still like deeply respected games I think it's absolutely wonderful that you call Ocarina of Time Zelda 64 <laughs> I was thinking that too actually. Um, I just don't like saying Ocarina of Time it's a mouthful <laughs> no I, I was going Zelda to say that I don't really have too much to add in, in terms of those games um you know, the, the tricks in Mario 64 that make so much speedrunning possible are also kind of why the game can be frustrating to play. Um, you know, just the sh- sort of the roughness of it. Um, now, I was going to say that, you know, a lot of these 
quirks and glitches still happen in games and you know one of the big uh fun things you can do in in animal crossing new leaf is use exploits and clipping glitches to get on top of buildings and uh, oh <laughs> basically people have just been taking screenshots on top of buildings and getting into places in the city where you're not supposed to and you know at that point you're kind of stuck and you have to save and restart the game in order to respawn someplace safe but you know even though obviously there's no such thing as a speed run of animal crossing although that would be interesting um god yeah what would you, I, what would you consider the end of animal crossing when you pay i mean off your maxing house out or, your yeah. house or collecting every item in the catalog i don't know i but, imagine um, new leaf it's it's getting to the point where you sit on the tree and get the ending you know hmm. okay <laughs> fair enough i haven't seen that myself um anyway no just you know the fact that you can still exploit games even though they're ostensibly much more polished um I don't know. It's part of the charm of the thing, like the the discovery of, hey, I just did something I'm not supposed to be able to do. Uh, that's something that's always been fun in games. You know, when when the game glitches and it it's disadvantageous, that sucks. But when it glitches and you discover something cool or something unique and novel that no one will ever see again, uh, that's great. And I think that speedrunning really gets into that appeal and sort of systematizes it, which is interesting. Yeah. And like Mario in particular, not to harp on it, but I just love these speedruns. But Mario turns into like from a, 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 like a fat schlubby plumber to like Neo from the Matrix. Like he's doing <laughs> things that you would not think could ever happen in the game. Like you can bend like past sliding. all those bullet bills. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, bullet time, bullet bill time. I guess. Hey. Uh, I apologize, man. <laughs> God, that should be like in a web comic fifteen years ago. That yeah. joke. I apologize. Let's. I, I think it was. I'm, I'm summoning a, a control alt delete from the past. So uh, let's move on. I want to talk about glitches and techniques. We talked a little bit about this, but I find this fascinating because it gives you a whole new vocabulary to use when you talk about this. So you watch a lot of uh, Wind Waker speedruns. Uh, I think Christian was just talking about those. I'm not sure if you saw it, Ray, any mm-hmm. Wind Waker speedruns. But sure. um, they've got something called storage where – Storage is the yeah. most amazing fucking thing. You, you <laughs> Let me explain this. Like, Okay, just <laughs> sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Like, so – Okay, like last year in 2013, I was in in Italy visiting Fran, my now husband, uh, when when uh, when AGDQ was going on, and he's like, "Let's watch AGDQ," and I'm like, eh, "I don't know, it doesn't sound that interesting." And he's like, "No, let's do it." And like then, of course, like I spent the next like three days or whatever just glued to my oh, computer, God, yeah. and like th- I think. It wasn't only uh, the Wind Waker run, but like the wind, like just when he started talking about storage and just like. I'm just like, holy shit. It's like to go back to this like terrible Matrix data analogy. It is like Neo, like he's seen through the Matrix. He knows how the shit works. It's crazy. Like, yeah. I mean, that is how a, did people figure this out? I'm is, sorry. I mean, sorry. As, what, what is storage? I'm somehow yeah, not aware. Oh, we'll go into it. Uh, storage is basically you, you fall off a ledge at the same time that you take out the baton. And doing that does something in the game where it messes up a ton of things. Like you can't open chests. You can't do a lot, but you can swim backwards at an alarming speed. Essentially, it allows you also, I think... Kind of how it works is that, like, when you do this animation on the specific, 
the animation to pull out the baton on a specific That's be on a, a certain frame, too. Yeah, yeah. It, like, you in queue actions. So, like, Link can do two things in one, sort of like in one. I'm, I'm not explaining it right, but it's yeah. something to do with, like, basically you trick the game into allowing you to behave in a way with the avatar that is impossible in normal gameplay. And right. that allows you to... Jump in the water and swim backwards a million miles an hour and, like, collide with the next island so you don't have to actually play through the game. Yeah, essentially. And, and it's hilarious because, like, <laughs> you're basically landing a rocket ship with no, like, retro boosters because Link is flying backwards and the runner is, like, hoping he hits the right island because otherwise he's just – Link is going to drown. Yeah, they, they have to know exactly because Link loses, like, uh, a little – he gets down in the water a little bit, you know, from swimming because – and, like, if he gets too far down, he's going to die or whatever. So, basically, they have to find and memorize the exact position on the first island and the exact <laughs> position to, like, aim Link's face yeah. so that when they swim backwards, he will collide with an island and not with nothing and not just die and then waste a whole bunch of time and destroy the run. They, they'll do that in, like, Ocarina of Time, too. Like, okay, I have, I have to pause the screen so that the B button icon is over this seam in the wall, and that will let me know that I'm lined up perfectly to do X or Y. Like, it is down to that. And, like, like I said, like... You will learn the names of techniques when you watch these speedruns. Like Resident Evil 4 is a great speedrun where they do something called Dip Man, where I forget what happens, but it makes Leon move slightly, like almost imperceptibly faster, but it shaves like a few minutes off the speedrun. So there are things like that. I think storage is the really the best uh, example of this just because it, you can do so much with it and it is kind of inscrutable unless you like unless it's explained to you, you know. Yeah, and they're always talking about RNG also, especially on the really, which I think is a really key term, which is random number generator, which is like they're always praying for good RNG or they're using tricks, like you said earlier, to to help generate better stuff. Like I was watching the Yoshi's Island speedrun and like there's, you know, everyone who's played Yoshi's Island knows you have like essentially if you get all five flowers, you have a 50% chance of getting a bonus game, mm. which anyone who's actually playing it normal wants because that's how you get extra lives. But they don't want it because it wastes time. So yeah. for every single flower circle in the game, I mean, some of the strategies are the same always. Like one of the ways to get uh, the timed right is to uh, carry an enemy in Yoshi's mouth. Mm -hmm. But essentially, like for the levels where that's impossible, they uh, they have to figure out a strategy for specifically running through the flower circle like and not triggering the flower and not getting the bonus game. And they, they do. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That's not really RNG, but it's like a technique to avoid what we would consider a random happenstance essentially because they know exactly how it functions. And then yeah. they have to shave. They have to add time. It's not shave time actually with Yoshi. It's add time so that like when they arrive at the circle, like – Right, it's got to like, be at a certain frame or a certain, like, uh, the, the little circular, circular thing has to be at a certain dot or whatever. I forget. But if you want to hear them yeah, talk yeah. about RNG, the two, I think, big ones for RNG, at least from my experience of watching them, is uh, Link to the Past uh, competitive run mm. and the Super Metroid competitive run, both from this year's AGDQ, because there was a lot of those games, uh, RNG with bosses in particular, yeah. and boss patterns. Yeah, like, I remember watching a guy who's like, I've never seen this pattern before from the uh, creepy brain ghost thing in Super Metroid. It has a name. I think Jeremy would know the name. Fantoon. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like, in that case, he's like, I've never experienced this RNG before, this, this order of attacks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. You, you learn a lot about, like, how the games work, and and the, the performances have their own techniques that are given names like storage and things like that. So there is so much that goes into these. It's not just playing well or playing fast. It's learning how games work. And I feel like – I think a lot of people might be scared away from this topic of the episode because they're like, I, why would I care about watching a game being played fast? But it's more about exploring, like, how the game functions um, than it is just, you know, performing. Performing is important too, but I, I, what I like about these games is, like, they show me how they work. 
Which it, also, is, it reveals the design of the games. I think it's, what's interesting is that you do see, like, to go back to what we were saying really early on, like, you see, like, by breaking the games, you see how well they stand up in a certain sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also you see, like, these people are working counter to, like, one of the reasons bosses have different, different patterns is because, like, it would be boring if they always did the same thing, right, for normal play. Right. Right. You know what I mean? You don't want the, like, or also it's more of a challenge if, if the player can't anticipate what comes next. Because, like, also sometimes you'll, like, normally, like, if you're playing Zelda 3, you might die and then have to fight the boss again. So if it was exactly the same the second time, you would, it would become boring, right? So, they, you know, they put this in to, to try and, like, make the game have more variety, but it's sort of the bane of the speedrunner, or, like, they have to try to find strategies to force the game to give them what they want. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what they do. They find strategies that somehow force the game to spit out the exact pattern that they want or to kill something before it does X or Y because it's going to waste a bunch of time. Yeah, like figuring out what, what seeds the RNG is like the Rosetta Stone for <laughs> speedruns, I feel. Like in, in most cases. I mean, there are other uh, speedrun techniques, but just finding out what the RNG comes from is like super important for some speedruns. So uh, we are coming up on the next topic, which is Awesome Games Done Quick, which we've mentioned a few times. What it is basically is a yearly um, speedrun event. It takes place seven days, I think. Is it just a whole week? It was, it was a week this yeah, year at yeah. least. But it runs all day. You can tune into it at any point on Twitch or through their website. And they raise money for the uh, Prevent Cancer Foundation. And uh, they raised over a million dollars this year, which is astounding. It's a real-time stream. Actually, it's funny. When I was in Italy, like, they particularly put the most popular games in, like, primetime, like, primetime TV, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And, like, while I was in Italy, I was on Europe time where, like, primetime is completely different. And in a weird way, I enjoyed watching it from Italy more because the weirder games, like, like, this year, like, a lot of the stuff I wanted to watch was, like, during the workday. And, like, because uh, it's, like, the more obscu- slightly more obscure or older stuff, slightly less popular. So, but the good news is that it's all on YouTube now, so you can watch it on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll include links to the past few run- f- past few years that include every speed run. But what I like about this, and not to be negative, but I feel like gamers get a bad bad uh, rep sometimes. Um, uh, a lot of times it is deserved, you know, the, the, the stereotypical, cliched, aggressively uh, masculine gamer who doesn't care about anyone but himself. Um, these people are the, probably the nicest people I've ever seen in the gaming world. Like they are the greatest people, and I think they do a lot for saying that you know, gamers can be a force of good. Um, well, there's there's two ways of actually like I was thinking about this a lot because I think about this a lot because I don't like the sort of negative soup that like the online and it's not just games like the, like Twitter and stuff can just become like this sea of negativity. Oh yeah, yeah. And like I think yes, it's positive that I mean obviously it's incredibly positive that they're raising money for cancer research, which is what they're doing, which is fantastic. But it's also like entirely based on like love. Like yes, these people are competitive, but they also share techniques and stuff and like but they just love these games so goddamn much. Like how could you do this unless you you know what I mean, you didn't love the game and that like the whole thing is so joyful. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things I really like about it. And that's one of the things I think we need more of in, like, the video game community. Yeah, yeah. I think that really helps me try to kind of articulate what I like about it. It is, it is a celebration. It's not just, like, snarkiness, which is easy to fall into online. It's just, like, these people love these games. They want to show you how good they are at them, and it's all for a really good cause. And, like, I, I just I just feel like there's a maturity from these people that I don't see, and they, and they are so much younger than me, it feels like. I'm just like, where did you come from? You're just, like, the nicest people ever. And this is not just a commercial for yeah. AGDDQ, but I feel like they are the best place to watch speedruns because you get – 
the live audience, you get like people giving commentary, you get like challenges. Like if you donate this much, I will take my shirt off. If you donate this much, I will play this part blindfolded. And mm-hmm. there's an entire super punch out bl- blindfolded speed run that is goddamn amazing. I don't know if you guys saw that or not, but um, the guy beats the entirety of super punch out with a blindfold on just listening to sound cues. It's, 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 it's phenomenal. I mean, and so there's so many good parts in that one, but it's like, also, I think like this, like some of them I don't want to spoil, so to speak, because like, oh, yeah, sorry. they're a good surprise. <laughs> yeah. But at the end, he's like, I wasn't sure I could do it, but he did it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that, that was fantastic. It's like one of the most, like he like, practiced um, and he only made it happen once, but yeah. like he managed to do it on camera at the event and like everyone just like flips the fuck out. Like yeah. just, if you want to watch people like flip out, it's great. You yeah, know, just, to be, just to, like I've never seen a room full of people that excited about Super Punch Out in my life. Like, and I love Super Punch Out, but it's I've never found people that excited. But they're there that in that hotel conference room, like getting totally pumped for this awesome game. So yeah. that's why, like, my, the thing I was saying earlier, like, just seeing all these young people weigh into these games gives me hope for the future. As much as we complain about, you know, like as, as cranky as we are sometimes, yeah. I feel like what we're doing here is not going to end with us. It's it's going to keep going because people will care about these games in the future, and events like this prove it. I think. Well, there was that guy who was playing Mr. Driller and kept shitting on the game. It's like, oh, oh <laughs> yeah. Most people, though, I think who I think also, <laughs> I'm just theorizing here, but I think to participate in AGDQ, you probably can't be a jerk because like you have to actually come and be social and be with all these people. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and like be part of this community and yeah. like thus to be part of this event like you probably can't be like like I'm sure there are speedrunners there who have like are not the nicest people or whatever but like to be part of this thing and like the pervasive like I've like you know I think all of us have been to like cons and events you always reflect on like you know online everything's like shitty but then you go to like a con or something and you meet like a billion nice people and you're yeah. like wow like this is great I really like this in person kind of event you know you hear this from people who go to PAX and whatever and like well yeah, it's like the same kind of effect. Yeah. I've joked about this before, but like I watch AGTQ and it's like, are there any speedrunners who are not wiry guys under 25? <laughs> you have it's to be a... just made of tendons, yeah. basically. Your whole entire body has to be just a giant pulsating tendon. Yeah. But it's just like this sea of guys who are all like the same build and like yeah. the same age. You mean, I, I mean, don't get it. You see some women, but they're like in the audience. Yeah, that's true. It's also, I think there's a certain degree to which it's it's like got to be like people, like it's like, you know, the golden age of playing games is not necessarily, like, what generation. Like, you know, I love PlayStation. Part of the reason I love the PlayStation Saturn era is because, like, right. uh, I was in college age when that came out. So guess what? I could play you as had money and, I, yeah, time. I, and I could play as much as I wanted, you know, basically. You know, so there's, there's, there's a mix of it. Like, that's part of the reason. But I think, like, to go back to what you're saying about, like, this will allow for the future of people to enjoy these kinds of games. It's not just that. It'll, like, it'll encourage people to make games that have this kind of robustness to them, maybe from a design perspective also, Hmm. or I don't know, like it'll create a culture of appreciation that'll have like knock-on effects we can't predict is how I'd rather put it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it was great to see, I guess, I think the finale was Chrono Trigger, but it was great to tune into that and be like, oh, 100,000 people are watching someone play Chrono Trigger. It feels good. It's just like, people still care about these games, and this is just me being passive-aggressive, but being a freelance writer for the past year, trying to pitch retro things, people, uh, publishers, I'm sorry, editors are like, no one cares about retro things, but it's like, look at awesome games done quick. That is a way to communicate like how great retro games are to an audience, not necessarily through text, but it's like, People obviously do care out there. Yeah. They just don't want to read about it. They don't want to read about it. That's why we're podcasting. No words, please. <laughs> yeah. Pictures only. Get those out of here. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I was going to ask for personal highlights, but I think we talked about some of our more favorite runs. And uh, I'm going to have a, like I said, go to the blog post at retronauts.com. I'm going to have an entire like list for you guys to check out of speed runs that I find super interesting that are a good way to break into this. And hopefully you can discover why these things are so great if you don't already know. And I see someone added to the notes a question. Who was that? That was me. 
Ray, please. I was just wondering, like, is there really a potential there for to make this into sort of a sport? Because, like, it seems like, you know, so much of it is, sure, it's competitive, but it's usually, like, you know, two or three guys trying to shave down the time on one game. I'm just wondering, like, you know, I mean... Well... It's not. What is, I mean, it's not competitive in the way well, you know other esports are. I can guarantee you, right before you continue, Christian, that there will, there will be a middle brow think piece about this event next year <laughs> yeah. about the oh, athletes God. in question, and uh, I'm not going to say who's going to publish it, but I can just see it happening. And it, yeah. might, it might be me who writes it. But uh, <laughs> go ahead, Christian. I was going to say, like, I mean, there's different kinds of sports. I mean, what's golf like compared to like. Uh, you know, I mean, we're not talking about esports, but like, you know, or I'm not, but like, you know, what's golf? Like, the point of golf is to like shave down your performance on a specific course. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? It's not the same. I mean, of course, there's more factors than that, but in the end, like, it's or like, you know, you read about chess and like, currently, the state of like professional chess, as I understand it, is basically people like trying to optimize strategy to, uh, to you know, to, like a lot of the strategy of chess has now been uncovered. Yeah, so people yeah. are now trying to optimize and memorize all the best strategies and 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 deploy them. So like. In that sense, it is it is kind of like other things, I think, in like at least a vague way. Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying, though. Like there comes, like I mean, if you watch the Super Metroid run, you do start to wonder, like, can this get much better? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. the competitive mm-hmm. Super Metroid, and like one of the people like in it kind of fucks up and gives up like midway through. I forget, like, because they just like happen to be a human being. Yeah, like, you know what I mean. And, still, like, the, and <laughs> yeah, the, the the human brain is still powering these things, and we we or can't the finger mess up. slips or yeah, who knows? yeah, you know what I mean. Like in the end, like it's at the point where like if you slip your finger off the button at the wrong second, you could actually just wreck it. You know what yeah, I mean? Because I'm, you have to flawlessly execute. I mean, yeah. like, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing anything. I'm just posing the question. Yeah, no. because no, also I totally like, see that. No, well, I'm telling the listeners, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my, like, my second part of that question or, you know, this th- topic was like, who's really getting the most out of the competition? Is it just them or is it us as the observers? Because, like, I'm trying to, th- you know, compare it to, like, a basketball game in an arena where there's tons of people or like, you know, Olympic weightlifting, like <laughs> where I, comparatively not as many people care. But I mean, for the actual competitor, it's probably really important to them. I think I'm just it, trying to see where the line is. In this case, the competition is a good thing because we benefit from the results. I mean, yeah. I, I assume unlike professional sports, these people are not ruining their lives doing this or wreck- destroying their bodies, maybe just their fingers. But yeah. I feel like it's, it's, <laughs> it's much too. more positive than that, that outcome of yeah. you know this competition. And there's a really great article that I will link to that uh, the Gameological Society wrote maybe a year and a half ago or something like that. And it was about the the race between two Mario 64 speedrunners, them back and forth, just trying to get better and better at the game mm-hmm. and their kind of relationship with each other there. And that that's a really great article. But yeah, I feel like there it's less, it's less like, it's less personal than it is in professional sports. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more like of a collaborative, um, a collaborative space where like people are sharing tips. Like Tiger Woods isn't helping like golfy McGolf or whatever, whoever, yeah. whoever, whoever else is yeah. golfing. They're not offering each other tips. I don't think they are. <laughs> um, sorry, I don't know anything about golf or any sport. That's why I, I'm a bad person no, to talk to about this. No, golfy McGolf the best. What yeah. <laughs> I'm more of a golfy Golfstein guy, but that's just me. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like there, I mean, there's no money at stake. So maybe that's why um, yeah. it's, it's a more, it's a friendlier atmosphere. I mean, yeah. I mean well, it probably helps from the beginning that all the money's going to charity. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny what you see like though, like, um, very often, you know, AGDQ, the way it's set up is we have the player on a chair in front and then, like, four people, three or four people who know a lot about the game on the couch. Yeah. And usually the person in front is, like, the current champion and, like, the person who's number two is sitting on the couch. 
or vice versa. And so, mm-hmm. like, they, they, they you'll, you'll see them, they'll, they'll talk about it. That's like, true, yeah. He's like, oh, it's like, I'm winning now. Like, oh, he's number two. You know what I mean? Or vice versa. So it's like, yeah. there's, there's, there is that, there's a camaraderie rivalry. I do see that. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> usually right. the, the second banana or whatever will be uh, giving commentary because some games are too intensive for the person to be giving commentary. And they'll have something called, like, quiet time where it's like, no serious one can talk time. while I do this. Or serious time, sorry. Where no one can talk while I'm doing this. But some, some speedrunners don't talk at all. And they have somebody on the couch saying, okay, this is what he's doing. This is why he's doing it. Yeah. Um, super great. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, I mean, it is it's just generally a good atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. That's it, what I think. That. I mean, like, I get, I mean, as someone who writes a lot of words on the internet and reads feedback and stuff, like, and as someone who is a negative person, uh, more than I like to admit. <laughs> because I, of the things you read. Yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's a vicious cycle we're all trapped in, but it's just nice to see, like, everyone's so nice to each other. I have not seen any incidents break out. I have not seen, like, people fight each other on camera. Mm -hmm. I see people get snippy from time to time, but that's just because it's a really, you know, competitive. Not competitive, but it's a very, you know, it's a very stressful experience. Yeah, like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are watching you at times. And you're like, everyone is watching me and the pressure is on. I could never do it. Yeah, I couldn't either. Like, I I feel a pressure of doing, doing, like, Twitch runs at home. Not doing that good to begin with. Yeah, I was like streaming, like playing puzzle games with Brandon Sheffield, and like I was losing, and I was like, ah, and there's like six people watching. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. My heart's beating. So, Jeremy, like, I, I don't know how familiar you are with this, but how do you feel like what does Awesome Games Done Quick do for the perception of the gamer? Do you think it's helping that perception at all? Because I feel like it's the one place I can go where it's like, oh, gamers aren't shit. They're, they could be nice people too. And I say this as a gamer who thinks he's a nice person. Um, I really don't have any personal experience with uh, AGDQ uh, just because I don't have time to watch fun things like that. Um, But I mean, the general perception that I get is definitely positive along the lines of things like, uh, you know, child's play and so forth. Just, you know, this community teaming up and trying to do something good while also being fun about it. So I don't see any downside to that. I've never seen anyone say, man, video gamers are terrible people and that awesome games done quick is exactly why. What a bunch of human garbage. Yeah. And I mean, they even go as far to say, okay, no one is swearing on these live streams. You know, uh, they keep the, the behavior is like PG at best. I mean, things slip out, but I feel like they try to keep it at like a family friendly sort of uh, video event. And I've seen people get yelled at, like the Hotline Miami guy uh, streaming that game. That game is horribly bloody and violent, but they can't swear while they're playing it because it's technically it's a family-friendly stream. So sit down with your kids and watch that Hotline Miami stream. Yeah. (laughs) So I did want to move on briefly to talk about something that is near and dear to me, something I really enjoy. And I think, Jeremy, you can uh, talk a little bit more about this than about uh, speedruns, and that's Let's Plays. talk about let's plays you are now everybody just shut up as soon as i said that <laughs> jeremy can you talk about your experience with let's plays i feel like um i get the same amount of enjoyment out of this 
and the same amount of um, in, in terms of like seeing how a game is explored through someone else, seeing how a game works. Like, what do you get out of Let's Plays? And I know you follow a few of them. Um, I don't really follow them anymore, just because, like I said, I don't really have time for that sort of thing. But I definitely, oh man, it's been it's been a long time. But definitely in the back in the day, I really enjoyed uh, the Let's Plays on Something Awful's forums, which is really kind of where they got their start and became popularized. Um, you know, there were there were a bunch of them that were just kind of, look, I'm playing a video game and posting screenshots, but then people started to get really creative. There was one that basically turned uh, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas into a novel. Uh, it was it was fantastic. It was funny and uh, well written. There are some that you know do specialty approaches to games. Um, there was a really great Final Fantasy VIII one that was just like let's break the hell out of this combat system because Final Fantasy VIII is so exploitable. And, you know, watching people pick apart a game like that and show how it works, but in a more methodical approach, um, to me that's more interesting than than a, a tool-assisted speedrun or something because you have an explanation of what's happening there as opposed to just like, hey, look, here's, a, here's me beating Chrono Trigger in three minutes because I cheated you know I, i've used exploits um, yeah to sit down and watch people just pick apart games you know flay them down to their components and put that on display is is really great and the, whether that's um you know something they do through the, the exploitation of glitches or just by playing it legitimately that's great and I'm, I'm sure that had a big impact on the anatomy of game stuff that i do in my little meager spare time um, though that's not really so much about like, you know, talking about the game experience and more about the game's um, sort of how it front loads instructions and how to play the game without actually saying, hey, listen, here's how you play. Yeah, and I guess I didn't um, I didn't really define a Let's Play if you haven't heard of them. It's kind of self, uh, self-evident what it is. It's someone playing through a game like Let's Play Dragon Ball's see whatever let's play this let's play that and there will be threads there'll be videos there'll be screenshots i mean they can take many forms like one of my favorite ones i saw in recent memory was one where it's like in final fantasy 6 if you get to the part where you have an airship and don't save and you get the airship and you die you will start back at narsh with the airship at, at the beginning of the game and you can do that to break the game in all kinds of amazing ways wow yeah like and i watched an entire thread just like what happens if we bring if we bring the airship here at the beginning of the game it's yeah. just I'm, like I've watched that is a, that plays. is a great thread yeah, <laughs> I've clearly watched because like all the let's plays I've seen are either just like people being jackholes over top of a game, oh, or like like I'm right. not gonna name names because I'm gonna alienate people if I talk about the ones I don't like. Oh, okay, but, but like mm-hmm. people like oh, I'm so funny, you're not. Yeah, or I hate like those. or just like I am, or, or the alternative like I am just like here's like video 37 of 432 of me playing through a game and like you know what I mean and just normally playing and just talking over it. Right. There are very few video let's plays that I find worth watching. Generally, okay, like, I prefer worth- text ones. Let's differentiate then, because yeah. I guess that's that's what I'm missing. Yeah, like, yeah. I've I've not gotten into the Let's Play thing at all, and I think mm-hmm. it's probably I I've, I'm approaching it wrong. Yeah, I think you have to have them vetted first, because I feel like uh, there's there's a recommendation thread. In Even s- some of the popular Let's Players, and I'm okay, not going to name yeah. names, are boring. Go ahead and say PewDiePie. No, <laughs> no, I was gonna, I'm, no I'm not. I'm not, okay. not going to name. I don't know. Yeah, no, no. We don't call people out, but I'm saying yeah. like I think if you vet them, if you have them vetted by someone whose taste you trust. 
then it is good. Like randomly, I will go like, oh, I want to see what this Japanese game looks like. Three videos in, oh, you just use three different racial slurs. I can't watch this anymore. Like you have mm-hmm. to have these things vetted, I think, ahead of time. And yeah. The Let's Play um, archive does a really good yeah. job of. You know, I was I was just going to suggest going to say or suggest um, go to lparchive.org and just jump around and find stuff and you know try it out eventually you will stumble on something that is really good and you will really enjoy it's it's a guarantee there's a ton of stuff there and it's hit or miss but just you know find some games that you're interested in and a lot of them are are picked over in multiple ways you can almost definitely find something that will will strike your fancy and that you will enjoy yeah, there, there's actually, uh, I don't know if you saw this one, Jeremy, but there's a really great Metroid one that kind of breaks down how the rooms are stored in the cartridge and how why the rooms are repeated. And it's really, really interesting. It's like, oh, the game has to have a vertical room after a, hor- a horizontal room because of these reasons. And it's it's really uh, cool to see the game broken down like that. Huh. I, I mean, I know a lot of that information just because of being a nerd, but um, I'll, I'll right. check that out. I haven't seen that yes, one. Yes, uh, I think you'd like it a lot. And it's not very long because Metroid's a short game. So yeah, I mean, I, I this is not related to speedruns, but I think I, Let's Plays I appreciate for the same reason. They are, so in some cases they are speedruns, but in, in most cases they do like show you how a game can be broken, how, how maybe a different play style than something you experience, or maybe just a way to play through a game that you would not want to touch. Like I just watched a Let's Play of uh, Enemy Zero. The, uh, what the hell is the guy's, God, I'm sorry, I forget his name. Kenji Ino? Yes, Kenji Ino, that yeah. game. It is a, a garbage pile, like a, just a messy, hot garbage pile of like late 90s ideas, but it's captivating to watch. I would not want to play it for in a million years. I would never want to it's play it. It's too hard. I, I mean, yeah. What's that? Oh, I, I played all the way through it. Oh, for, for, your, for your magazine. Yeah. Ray, talk about it. <laughs> Enemy oh. Zero. I love Enemy Zero, but like yeah. at least at the time for me, it was too hard. Like I just couldn't progress after a certain point. Yeah, like the guy was playing it for the I, hard the hard games thread on the Something Awful Let's Play forums, and he's like, this is awful. I hate this so much. But it, he was like sticking with it, and I was like, I'm glad you're doing this for me, dude, because I could not tolerate I mean, did you Did you finish the game, Ray? I, well, first of all, I definitely finished it with a guide. Okay, okay. <laughs> wow. the fact. And, and we should say it, Enemy yeah. Zero is a game by Kenji Ino, who's two different developed a lot of games, but uh, as as made uh, semi-obvious from the title, the enemy is invisible, and it's usually like a one-hit kill, right? Yeah. yeah. And no yeah. real radar. You just kind of get like a beeping noise like in Knuckles uh, levels yeah. in Sonic Adventure well, or whatever. more useful than it sounds on right. paper. I'm not dissing the game. It's just like... Yeah, you yes, you are. Uh, <laughs> it's a pile of garbage. Uh, it, 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 like it's I said, it, it's, it's, also, it's also captivating, but it's unplayable, you know? I, I mean, it's um, not unplayable. I People I know so. beat it at the time before there were internet yeah. Yeah, strategy yeah. guides for it. It's not literally unplayable. It's but just, in 2014... It, it's painfully difficult. It was painfully difficult at the time. Yeah, I guess yeah. what I'm saying is like, I didn't beat it because it was really hard. I really liked it at the time, but like... This allows you access to games that are too hard or too archaic or too, like, Enemy Zero is a good example of a game that was, like, made with a very specific player-punishing, deliberately creative ethos. Okay. On top of that, it's also, like, a janky-ass Saturn game. Yes, yes, yes. And, like... Those things are all giant barriers to entry that don't mean that it's a terrible game. It was right. just, it's a product of its time. I, I will and go back and uh, I, I, I will take, I will retract my uh, insult because everyone's getting so mad at me. But uh, <laughs> I'm not mad at you. I'm just trying to be, I'm just trying. Like, no, I respect what it, what it tries to do. It just doesn't do it in a great way that yeah, I would no, find it's, entertaining. It's, it's completely inaccessible. Yeah. Like, let's face it, like to most people. But in the end, like that's, I guess that's what we're talking about. Like, and speed running Enemy Zero would be pointless. Like, so mm-hmm. like Let's Play is like, yeah. to get to the point of this conversation, I guess, like yeah. Let's Play is a window into games that can't be speedrun or wouldn't be speedrun. It's a way to look at games that are interesting because guess what? Enemy Zero is really interesting. It is. 
is. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, to be fair, I watched almost all of Kenji Ino's games uh, speedrun. Like, I watched D and D two because it's like those games look pretty tough and like kind of inscrutable. But like, I want to see where the weird places they go, and that's sort of why I watch Enemy Zero. So it's like, as much as I was making fun of it earlier, I did enjoy watching it for two or three hours, however long the game takes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the game where like you have a finite number of saves, like. Cause oh, yeah, yeah. Like, it takes, like, like, battery power or yes, whatever. Yes, you have a battery, and, like, you can only save X number of times. It's, it's worse than the typewriter ribbons in Resident Evil. It was like, you know, let's take the typewriter ribbons and make it worse. Like, that's literally what he was thinking. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah, it's like a, it's a weird <laughs> game. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I can respect what he did, but I think I think Kenji, you know, like, wanted to alienate you with everything he made. You know, yeah, that was no, sort of, like, his M.O., yeah. That was that was his, uh, that was his, Enemy Zero was, like, the the uh, the implication of where he was ultimately going, which was away from making video games. Like, yeah. That was his way of saying, like, F this ass. I feel like when I was making fun of it five minutes ago, I could just feel his ghost, like, smiling and winking, like, I did yeah. my job. Yeah, yeah, no, basically, yeah. And, like, the funny thing is, like, t- I mean, we're now digressing crazily, but. Yeah, but it's retro nuts. Yeah. <laughs> because, like, D2 is, like, if you read the, you know, interview he did with, uh, with Milky and Shane, like, you know, he's like, he came back and made D2, and like, D2 is way more conventional. I mean, it's still not like hyper conventional, but it's way more conventional and way more accessible. Yeah, there are like systems and in the game. It's and easy to hit like, It's ultimately not even that hard of a no, game. No. But like, so he, uh, I guess my point is like, he, he, and then he was like, yeah, I made this game, it was conventional, and then I had to stop making video games because what was the point? Mm. You know, so like, I guess you can see Enemy Zero is like the reaction to like yeah, what was I going on that. at the time. But. Anyway, anyway, yeah. Anyway, uh, anyway. Uh, I, I enjoyed this conversation, but I, I recommend that you check out, like, uh, especially for games from from people that are, you know, maybe not for you. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I watched. Uh, I couldn't finish Heavy Rain, so I watched a Let's Play of it. And I'm like, oh, now I get why this game is so bad. Yes, I said yeah. it. I said it, and I'll oh. say it again because none of your choices matter. And that's what that Let's Play showed me. It showed me why that game was bad, why I didn't like it, because the guy was like, let's try it this way. Oh, nothing changed. Let's try it yeah. that way. Nothing changed. It's like, <laughs> yeah. wow, wow, like, the wi- I can see the wizard now, and he's he's a fraud. Yeah, yeah, yeah though, I think that, like, oh, never mind. I'm just going to start more <laughs> con- Never mind. Never who mind. will Christian make not? Uh, right. no, no, just who will I piss off slash what game will I shit on? Like, this is not what I want to do. I want to celebrate. Yes. But I enjoy like I didn't enjoy the game, but I enjoyed watching someone play the game and sort of like you know tampering with it and exploring what it could and couldn't do. So there was some enjoyment to be had there. Which I think that kind of stuff is actually of particular value to people who aspire to be game designers. Actually, yeah, because like like the one thing I will say about Heavy Rain is that like unless you are trying to pull it apart, like if you're just playing it as like as an experience, you're not really going to notice any of this shit because you're just no. playing it as a linear game, yeah. right? And, David and you Cage, have your single experience and like you kind of get tricked into believing there's more to it than it is maybe, right? Right, and that's why like I, I call David Cage a, ma- a magician and not a game designer because he's kind of pulling a magic trick on you. And that's why even with Heavy Rain, he was like, don't play the game again. You're not going to like it. Like basically like mm-hmm. don't look for holes because you're going to find them. This is made, made to be one experience and that's right. it. Which I think like t- the point I wanted to make is like, you know, like I don't know why they put that in The Walking Dead, like the, the replay and see what could have happened otherwise. Because uh, yeah. all that does is expose that this, the, the Walking Dead is the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. But I think The Walking Dead is a little more successful with uh, what they do. But that's I a, don't. That's a, 10 years from now we will talk about it, right? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. So that was our uh, our little chat about speedruns and a little sidebar on Let's Plays because I feel like they are so they sort of serve the same function in a different context. And I, I enjoy these. I don't have a lot of time to play games uh, in my own time, so I, I use these while I work vicariously to experience things that um, I could never do or maybe wouldn't want to do on my own. So thank you for joining us. But before I wrap up, I do want to announce our contest winners. Yes, we had 115 entran- entries in our Retronauts review contest, and I will let you know 
who won the contest. Uh, so the two runner-up prizes will get a T-shirt, and those winners are Nato, N A T T zero, and Eric four four seven seven. And our grand prize winner, who gets a T-shirt and their choice of episode, uh, is going to be Trouble Town. So we have Nato with a zero, Eric four four seven seven, and Trouble Town is our grand prize winner. So please. Contact me at bob at retronauts.com, and we will get you set up with your goodies, and we'll talk about your episode, Trouble Town. So thank you for entering, everyone who entered, and that really helped us out on iTunes, and we will probably have a contest in the future at some point. Yeah. So uh, thanks a lot for all of your reviews. So to wrap up, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, and Twitch uh, as Retronauts, especially Twitch because we've all been streaming a lot more lately. I did a Bonk's Revenge where you did... Uh, well, as I promised before, I did stream Congo's Caper, and I finished it in one setting, so Ooh. I think I'm going to have to get uh, Michael back in here and <laughs> talk about that, <laughs> not being that quite as hard. Uh, and then uh, just recently, as we record this, I played uh, the new uh, Rygar re-release on PS4 as part of their Wait, new arcade uh, archives. I want to ask you about this. Now is a good time, I guess. So those <laughs> are are those only out in Japan? Yes. Do you have a Japanese PS4 or a Japanese PSN account or something? Account. Yeah. Okay, can you have multiple PSN accounts on a PS4 like yes. you could on a PS3? Yes, Red. Can I transfer my Japanese PS3 PSN account to my PS4 and be the same yeah, person? Yeah, just same login details. I better do that. Mm. Shit. We yep. all learned something today. Go right there on the store. And so, yes. So, yes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, oh. uh, just real quickly. I mean, that that was kind of fun. There's kind of a way to, like, talk to people, show the, what was new about that re-release. Uh, spoilers, not much, but, yeah, just something to look forward to. Okay, doke. And as always, go to our blog at retronauts.com. And for this episode, you'll find a list of interesting speedruns for you guys to check out, including a link to the indexes for both of the uh, most recent awesome games done quick, where you can just look up whatever you know speedruns you want. But I have a few that I'll put up on the front page to recommend to you to be like, hey, this is a good way to get into speedruns if you haven't. If you listen this far, I think you probably are still interested. So uh, please check that out at retronauts.com. And their next one is in summer, so pretty soon. Right? Yeah, summer games done quick. I think June, early June, mid-June. Yeah. yeah, just go to their page. You can find it there. I'll have a link to it on our site. And also, even though the contest is over, please keep the reviews coming. They always help. And uh, we want to climb up the charts again. So, yes, please review us on the iTunes Music Store. So, contact info. I am Bob Servo on Twitter, B-O-B-S-E-R-V-O. And you can find my work at US Gamer and Something Awful. Uh, Jeremy, how about you? I'm on Twitter. Yes, that's what it's called. Twitter as GameSpite. And you can find my work at usgamer.net and also anatomyofgames.com and gameboyworld.com which are little side projects that I do occasionally Jeremy can you talk about Game Boy World for like 30 seconds I think more people should check it out I especially mean, Retronauts I'm listeners I'm just going through the entire history of uh, Nintendo's Game Boy catalog and playing every game and doing little brief articles and videos on the games in chronological order based on their Japanese or US release uh, depending on which reason, region it was released in first. It's, you know, a kind of long-term project, and I don't know how far I'll actually make it, but um, it's been interesting so far, and I've really enjoyed kind of playing these games and digging up information about them to provide context for them, and you may not think that the Game Boy library holds up to time very well, and perhaps you're right, but mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to put things kind of in the context of its original history, and... Um, I don't know. At the very least, it'll be a complete listing of Game Boy games, uh, sort of a graphical gallery. But, you know, I'd like to get as many videos and articles produced as I can. So stay tuned through the years and we'll see what happens. Awesome. 
Ray, what are you working on? Uh, well, first of all, I'm RDBAA on Twitter. Uh, of course, I have my magazine, Scroll, at scroll.vg. Uh, the only news on that front is that I just put up like a garage sale page where I was trying to unload some uh, overstock uh, print issues, so you can get a couple of issues there, and also uh, the, the Art Dink games I was using for the Art Dink issue and scanning. Uh, I mean, people have not been jumping at that quite uh, yet, but uh, it's there. I mean... Ray, Ray, do you have a, ta- a, a copy of Tale of the Sun for purchase? Because I'd like to buy that. I did. That. It sold. Oh, uh, my God. I quit. <laughs> they're just bundles, uh, different themed bundles of the games. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I can understand if you don't want some obscure PC game. but uh, And I tried to price them as fairly as possible. I mean, I didn't know what to price them, basically, except what I already paid for them. So. But, yeah, that's all. Cool. Sounds <laughs> good. Christian... Where can we find you, and what are you working on? Well, you can always find me at Gama Sutra, um, either in, like writing or behind the scenes, helping, well, not helping, like running the blog section and helping to make sure that the best stuff uh, gets onto the front page and into the Twitter feeds so people who blog in Gama Sutra can get the exposure they deserve. And um, you can also find me on Twitter at Ferricide, that's F-E-R-R-I-C-I-D-E. And finally, if you'd like listening to me talk for some reason, you can also listen to the Tiny Cartridge Tiny Cast which happens virtually every week. Hmm. Um, and that's at tinycartridge.com with me, uh, typically with also my husband, Fran, and, uh, of course, Eric Kaoli and J.C. Fletcher, the two co-editors of Tiny Cartridge. Great. Well, thank you again, Christian, for coming in, and thanks to Jeremy and Ray, as always. And we will see you next week with a brand-new episode of Retronauts Pocket. Later. <laughs> <laughs>